Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me something, something I, I don't, don't know. know. Did you know, for instance, who is the current mayor of Boston, Massachusetts? Hi, this is Mayor Marty Walsh. And did you know that Mayor Marty Walsh has a lot to tell us about Boston? For instance, did you know that my hometown neighborhood of Dorchester is home to the country's first chocolate factory, which was known as the Baker Chocolate Company? I did not know that. Boston is also home to the first subway, public beach, public school, and free public library. I did not know that. I bet you didn't know that about 100 years ago, there was a molasses flood in Boston where waves of molasses rushed through the streets of the North End. I definitely did not know that. Thanks for coming out tonight, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner. Thanks to Boston Mayor Marty Walsh for helping introduce the theme of tonight's show, Cities. Conover. You might know me from my TV show, Adam Ruins Everything, but now I'm going deeper as the host of the new podcast, Factually, out now on Earwolf. We dive in with exceptional experts from professors to Pulitzer Prize winners to reveal shocking truths from around the world of human knowledge. And, you know, I do my best to make it funny. It's an investigative comedy podcast for curious people who never stop asking questions. Factually is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is live journalism wrapped in a game show, and tonight it is also wrapped in the warm embrace of Boston, Massachusetts. To talk about cities tonight, we put together a panel of Boston's best and brightest. Would you please welcome the Harvard economist Ed Glazer, the MIT urban planning scholar Amy Glassmeyer, and one of our favorite comedians from anywhere, Mr. Eugene Merman. Let's begin with Ed Glazer. What do we know about you so far? We know you grew up in Manhattan. You're one of the world's leading scholars on the economics of cities. You've written a wonderful book called Triumph of the City, How Our Greatest Invention Makes Us Richer, Smarter, Greener, Healthier, and Happier. And yet, we also know you live in a very low-density suburb of Boston. <laughs> Strikes me as very disappointing. Ed Glazer... Tell us something we don't yet know about you. Well, you might not know that I'm really a hideously bad athlete, so much so that at summer camp, I was told to stop playing tennis by my coach for the good of the game. <laughs> That's, um... <laughs> Ed Glazer, we're so pleased to have you here tonight. Our next panelist, Amy Glassmeyer, what do we know about you? You are specifically a professor of economic geography and regional planning at MIT. You're also the creator of the Living Wage Calculator. We know you spent three years researching psychiatric health care in the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps. We know that you were a whitewater river guide. So, Amy Glassmeyer, tell us something we don't know about you. I like to run for uh, elections as a write-in candidate. <laughs> well, have we got an office for you. Uh, so, when I was in high school, I um, put my name in candidacy and I won. But it turned out that in my high school, you can't be a write-in candidate. So I didn't get to take my position. So I did it again when I was in college, and um, I won. So I, it's actually very thrilling to win, and, you know, I'll do it again. Uh, do you have a particular office in mind at the moment, perhaps? Actually, I, yes, I do. I yeah. do. I'm going to run for selectman in my town. All right, good luck with that. And our final panelist, Eugene Merman. We know you, sir, as a comedian, the voice of Gene on Bob's Burgers, a character that was based on you. We know that you're a fairly new father, so congratulations, Eugene. Uh, we know, Eugene, you were born in Soviet Russia, and your family moved when you were four to a low-density Boston suburb just a few miles from Ed Glazer's current low-density Boston suburb, interestingly. Yeah but that you eventually wised up and decamped for New York where you were named the city's best comedian by The Village Voice. Mm. We know you take your pizza with far too many toppings 
And we know that you're a huge fan of Jethro Tull. Yes. Are you Gene Merman? Tell us something we don't yet know about you. Um, I used to work at Tuscanini's Ice Cream. Yeah. Uh, and uh, May 3rd, uh, 2014, Mayor Marty Walsh named uh, Eugene Merman Day in Boston. Oh, oh wow. Eugene, Amy, Ed, so pleased all of you are here to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it works. Guests from the audience will come on stage and try to impress you with their IDKs, their I Don't Knows. You are free to ask them anything you want, and at the end, you'll pick a winner based on three very simple criteria. Number one, did they tell you something you truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? Now, to help with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time fact-checker, Mike Maughan. Mike is head of global insights at the software company Qualtrics. He got a BA from Brigham Young, an MBA from Northwestern, an MPA from Harvard, and now helps the NBA's Utah Jazz raise money for cancer research via the Five for the Fight Foundation. Mike Maughan, welcome. And what are your qualifications for fact-checking this city's episode, would you say? Yeah, so I have lived in 23 cities in five different countries. Some of those cities were small, some large. But in this area alone, I lived in Watertown, Belmont, and Cambridge. And uh, worldwide, what do you say is your favorite city? Paris. And that's because of the architecture, the history, the museums, what? Probably the crepes. I mean, you, you don't get a body like this by not loving crepes. <laughs> All right, then, it's time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tonight's theme, remember cities, how they work or don't, why we love them or not. Would you please welcome our first contestant, Sarah Williams. Hey, Sarah, nice to have you. Tell us a bit about yourself. I'm an associate professor at MIT um, in the urban planning department, and my specialty is technology and urban planning. And I also run a research lab called the Civic Data Design Lab. So, Sarah, I'm ready. So are our panelists, Ed Glazer, Amy Glassmeyer, and Eugene Merman. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? So what is the biggest knockoff in China? Is it an item, or, or do you mean like... Chinese communism copied from Russian communism. Does that qualify as a, as a, as a knockoff? Uh, it's the biggest knockoff. It's the big. biggest knockoff. It's big. Oh, ladders? No, that's not a but good guess. Is it something it's you would thing. have in your it's own not... yard? Skyscrapers? That's getting close. <laughs> Does it have to do with transportation? Well, there is transportation in this knockoff. Does it involve recreation? Is it, is it related to having fun? You could have fun in this knockoff. Oh, is it a prison? <laughs> <laughs> is it in a major city? Uh, it could be a major city. Could it be not in it, a major city? Is it in a major city or is it a major city? Oh, or, it, it, it depends it, on what the meaning of A yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Is uh, the biggest knockoff rounding round. cities? <laughs> is, is, it, is that it? Well, the biggest knockoff in China is Paris. Uh. The Chinese government is trying hard to draw people out of urban areas, um, so much so that they decided to knock off cities. And in one case, they are building an entire city that looks like the French capital, Paris. People love visiting the Paris knockoff, mostly for wedding uh, photos, um, but almost nobody lives there. And ghost cities are like this everywhere in China. And the Chinese government doesn't seem to care that nobody lives there. And that's because the construction from the cities creates jobs. And people actually buy the apartments, but just never move in. I was kind of right with the prisons thing. So uh, ghost cities represent a lot of what's wrong with the Chinese housing market. It's a huge bubble waiting to burst. Um, mapping these ghost cities is a way to find out when and where the housing market might crash. A map like this would help us anticipate the foreclosure crisis before it happened, if we had one. So what my team has done is use social media um, activity, where people text, where they post, to figure out where people live, and where people are not living is likely a ghost city. Now, Ed, you, um, you've written a lot about 
real estate generally, uh, regulation values, and so on. Do you know much about uh, the potential of a Chinese housing bubble? And if so, is what uh, Sarah's talking about a viable way to identify? Sure. I mean, identifying vacancies in China is really, really hard, uh, in part because we don't always trust all the official statistics. I mean, the usual number is about one-fifth of the Chinese housing stock is empty. And that compares to how to the U.S. then? One uh, to two percent for single-family detached housing, as much as 10 percent for rentals. But th- those rentals are being flipped and, and left empty, whereas this is 20 percent that's vacant. In Shanghai and Beijing, they're empty because people have bought them and left them empty. In many third- and fourth-tier cities, they're empty because the developers have built them and they can't sell them, and nobody is making them sell them. They're allowed to sit on them forever. And that's, that's the question, is how the government will let this thing go out. Mm. The problem is, is that they, they built the cities without any infrastructure. So you've got housing, but you don't have health care, you don't have education, you don't have transportation. So you basically are, like you said, putting people in prisons. Mm. Excellent. Before we finish up with Sarah, let's check in with our fact checker, Mike Mon. Uh, how legit is this, the proliferation of Chinese ghost cities? So part of what you said is true and part is questionable. The questionable piece is trying to compare the housing bubble in the U.S. to the housing bubble in China. There appear to be very different economic fundamentals at work. I'm very nervous <laughs> to say that with Ed here. I don't blame you. Um, <laughs> the part that is demonstrably true is that China does have loads of ghost towns and lots of replica cities. They've got, like you mentioned, Paris, Venice, London. A lot of people call these duplitecture towns. Uh, one of those fake cities that's actually doing very well, though, is the fake Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It is. It is doing very well. That is true. So China, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, <laughs> has fake snow, a fake Route 66, and people speculate that it's doing better than the others because, uh, one, people want to live in an American resort-style town, and two, it's only an hour and a half away from Beijing, so it's easy enough to get to. There are other speculations as well that these duplitecture towns are sort of a reaction against communism, and the Chinese government has actually lashed out in the last few years, saying that these cities are at odds with traditional Chinese values, and they're trying to change them. Hmm. Sarah Williams, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Noah Wilson-Rich. Hey, Noah, who are you? What do you do? I'm a behavioral ecologist and chief scientific officer at a startup headquartered in Boston. Excellent. Okay, Uh, the floor is yours. What do you have to tell us? Cities are a surprisingly good habitat for what creature? Apparently neither Ed Glazer or Eugene Merman. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um. So does this live under the ground or above the ground? Above ground. Okay. However... Some are underground. Is it drummers? <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so by good for, do you mean that it just has abundant stuff, or do you mean that cities help these animals evolve to be smarter, better, quicker, stronger than they otherwise would mm, be? Perhaps more so the latter. Do these um, beasts uh, vacation in rural areas? <laughs> no. Do they wear clothes? No. They don't. Oh, in Richard's Gary, do they wear clothes? <laughs> <laughs> do they have tails? No. Ooh, do they have jobs? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are they vegetarians? Yes. Oh. Ve- vegan, in fact. Oh, people who work at bicycle shops? <laughs> <laughs> but no. You, so you said they could live... On the surface, but they also can live under the ground. Is that yes. correct? Above so, ground or underground. And they like them both the same? Uh, it depends on the precise species. It's got to be us. What else could yeah, it be really, other than humanity? Really, really. The, uh... What is the ecological purpose of this thing? Mm. Ooh. For humans? Mm, for the world. For the world. It's such an esoteric question. All right, all right, how about just for us, for humans? For us, what does it do? It's food. Oh. Chickens! <laughs> and I'll say perhaps indirectly. Moss you... or something? Yeah. Close. Okay. Noah, let me yes. ask for one clarification. You said they're involved in food production, but not directly. Does that mean we don't eat them directly? Correct. We do not eat them directly, but they are indirectly involved in our food production. Do Other you have them at your so house? often overlooked. Yes. You do. Do you have them in jars? No. Where do you have them? In boxes. Does anyone in the audience 
know what this is? Let's hear it. Just shout it out. Bees. Is bees the answer, Noah? Bees is the answer. We just saw in action the wisdom of the crowds right there, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. So Noah, okay, bees, uh, tell us more. Why are cities, is your argument, cities are surprisingly good for bees, yes? So you've probably read in the news that bees are dying nationwide. That's because of agricultural chemicals, bee diseases, and habitat loss. But bees are doing somewhat better in cities compared to the countryside especially. Urban beehives make more honey, They survive the year better, and they're actually more biodiverse, meaning there's more species of bees in cities than their surrounding countryside. My lab looks a step past what's killing bees. Instead, we look at what saves them. Our latest research shows data that bees actually have better habitats in urban environments. Results from our Honey DNA project, which sequences the genome of plant DNA found in honey samples, informs us that urban areas have more plant species that are feeding bees, especially compared to the rural and suburban habitats. So this greater plant diversity must help bee nutrition, and that's saving our pollinators. So let's save bees together, plant flowers, get beehives, and tell somebody... What about the, the pollutants, though, that are not in, present in urban areas that are in rural areas and are used in massive quantities in places where bees are taken to actually feed? So just like with cities, we think there's pollution. This can't be good for bees. But one thing we started to look at was the pesticide levels found in beehives in cities and then all around Massachusetts. So this was in a study published this year through the Harvard School of Public Health where we provided some of the bee samples. And there were pesticides all over Massachusetts, in the city, in the countryside, in the suburbs. It wasn't less pesticides in the cities, as we predicted, that shows that there really isn't a relationship between the pollution levels and bee survival, at least. It's not to say that pollution isn't bad for bees or that pesticide isn't bad, but the absence of those things doesn't necessarily explain the survival. But you're using chemicals in a very general way. Mm -hmm. And the chemicals that are bothering bees in rural areas are very specific kind of chemicals, aren't they? Absolutely. So this study looked at a particular class of pesticides called neonicotinoids. There are so many other pesticides out there too, and we're finding diseases everywhere as well. So between agricultural chemicals, diseases, and habitat loss, we have these three threats working together. And the one thing that seemed to be in better shape of those three in cities was the habitat. We find more plant species diversity in cities, just as the same thing with bee species. Mike Mon, Noah is telling us that uh, city bees can kick the butt of country bees. Uh, what more can you add to it? So generally speaking, this appears to be true. Now, North Carolina State University published a study that said there are more pathogens in urban environments and those actually reduce honeybee survival. That said, this greater variety of plant species in urban centers is a huge driver of honeybee health, and that outweighs the pathogens. Uh, And it's also true that people are taking these urban bees and repopulating rural environments. So all of that works. I think most interestingly, the most important driver of health and survival for bees and men who have behaved as idiots is the amount and variety of flowers they bring home. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mike. And Noah, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Thank you. Would you please welcome our next contestant, David Glick. Hey, David, what's your story? I'm an assistant professor in the political science department at Boston University and a faculty member on a team uh, at the Initiative on Cities at BU. Very good. You sound pretty qualified for tonight. What do you have for us? We've all probably heard enough about blue states and red states. So my question is, who or which group from states that Trump won would hold very similar policy views on a bunch of pretty divisive questions as their colleagues or equivalents in states that Clinton won? And these are are government officials, not like drummers. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they are government officials. Could you restate the question as if you weren't a political scientist? (laughs) If we were trying to go out and find a, a group of folks or government officials 
that work in red states that would give very similar answers on the kind of questions that generally divide politicians as their colleagues who work in blue states. So there's some corner of government or some quadrant of government where the red and blue people are all really purple. Correct. Yes. Well, not the people, the government officials. The government officials, exactly. <laughs> These are elected officials. Ah. Yes, they are elected officials. Okay. Oh. Spies. <laughs> <laughs> Do they provide specialized services, or are they general agents of government? They are pretty generalized. Jurors. Are they part of the public safety team? Uh, not the ones I know about, at least. And they're, and they're elected at some lower level of government below, this, below the state level, presumably. Uh, correct, yes. Correct. So like county executives or... Something. You know, comptroller. <laughs> they, comptroller? Wow. <laughs> Tell me comptrollers disagree. We, no way. Hopefully at some point, maybe my research agenda will take us there, but we've, we haven't gone that far down the, down the oh. government chain yet. Is this the kind of answer that our panelists are going to smack themselves in the Possibly. forehead afterwards, we, we thinking it was even, obvious? We may Mayor? have even heard from one of them tonight. Mayor. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, David, give us some more details on this, please. Sure. So as part of the annual um, Menino survey of mayors, which I work on with a team at BU, this year we talked to about 100 mayors from cities over 75,000 people. And so we asked them a bunch of questions about policy issues, and we compared the answers from the mayors who work in red states to the mayors whose cities are in blue states. So this is not saying we compared Democrats to Republicans. This is saying we compared all the mayors who serve in blue states to all the mayors who serve in states that Trump won. And on questions like, what is the biggest economic challenge facing your city? 44% of mayors in states Clinton won and 44% of mayors in states that Trump won um, said poverty, for example. And similar numbers said um, inequality and things like that. Similarly, um, we asked them about the groups that government should do more to help. And in Trump states, 23% said um, the poor. In Clinton states, 21% said the poor. Immigrants, about 9%, 10% in both. So basically, very similar answers. Because the folks who are actually elected mayors in blue and red states are quite similar. So those two types of states are equally likely to elect a female um, or a minority, and even a Democrat. There's only about a six or seven percentage point difference in the likelihood that a mayor of a city over 75,000 people in a red state... um, is a Democrat versus a mayor in a, in a blue state. The denser parts of red states look a lot and have a lot in common politically with the denser parts of blue states and certainly more in common in many ways than they do with the more um, rural parts of red states. I mean, I would also think it's the fact that mayors, as we know, who have to get stuff done, simply can't afford to be so partisan. Is that Part of the story or no? I think that's part of it, but I think it is partly that, you know, if you're a city of 100,000 people or 300,000 people, wherever in the country you are, you are going to face similar issues, including, you know, water and sewer and all of these other kinds of challenges. There's no Democratic or Republican way to take out the trash, right? (laughs) Uh Panelists, does the argument surprise you or not so much? So I have a problem with this. Yeah. Um, And the reason I have a problem with this is I have a friend who's a journalist and he looked at the... Um, distribution of voting within counties over the last four election cycles, and they really changed. The, the big cities were always Democratic, but the, the smaller counties all moved in the direction and substantially moved in the direction uh, toward Republican. So I'm trying to fit your analysis into that picture. Mm. Mike Maughan, uh, maybe you can add some insight. The purple mayors of America and whether there is some stratification between city size and so on? Yeah, so the data seems to show that this is true, but by way of example, if you look at a map highlighting how counties voted, you'll see that the voting patterns in two of the most different states in the nation, Texas and New York, look almost exactly the same. So cities voted for Clinton, but almost everywhere else in those states voted for Trump. But this type of fact is true within cities over time. So the work of Ferraro and Jerko looks at city mayors when they flip just narrowly from Republican to Democrat. And it turns out that they do exactly the same things. And it comes down ultimately to this utter pragmatism which is required to lead a great city. There's this old story that um, Mayor, uh, it, was, it was then, it was, it was Mayor Lindsay of New York with Mayor Daley of Chicago. And they were talking about it at this conference of mayors, and Lindsay was giving an impassioned speech about how the Vietnam War was wrong and how it was terrible, and it was all about foreign policy. And he sits down, and this gruff old big Chicago Paul leans over and he says, you do know your job is to take out the trash, don't you? <laughs> 
Very good. David Glick, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more contestants will make our panelists tell us something we don't know. If you would like to be a contestant on a future show or attend one, please visit tmsidk.com. You can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight, Ed Glazer, Amy Glassmeyer, Eugene Merman. Our fact checker is Mike Maughan, and tonight's theme, you'll recall, is cities. To that end, earlier, we asked our live audience here in Boston a simple question. The question was as follows. Other than Boston, what's your favorite city and why? Panelists, I'd love each of you to read one of their replies. Ed Glazer? Why don't you pick one This start? is from uh, Rex T, and I assume that's not the Secretary of State. Uh, <laughs> Tokyo, with an exclamation point. That's where I learned you can eat sushi with your hands and that it's possible to have a clean city. Um, very good. Thank you for that from Rex T. Amy, who do you have there? Tokyo. Tokyo. Toilets with sprayers and dryers down there. Cab drivers who wear white gloves and don't speak English. Challenging. Love the motels. Do we agree that uh, the Japanese think about the butt more holistically <laughs> than we do? How do you know? Well, I, I mean, just judging primarily from the toilets. <laughs> but it, it is, is true. They make the most extraordinary multifunctional toilets, really. And indeed, it intimately relates to the evolution of night soil. In uh, Tokyo, where in fact the way that sanitation was provided in 19th century Japan, and this goes back earlier in China, is that farmers would actually pay to be able to pick up the, the excrement and take it out to their farms. And then somewhere around the 1920s, they stopped being willing to pay, and this created a huge crisis for public health in Tokyo, where they had to figure out some other way to get rid of the excrement. Mm. You know, that happened in Boston, too. <laughs> is that no, right? No, back in With the, the 18th century, Boston didn't have sewage treatment. So, and they would have uh, a little cabinet in the back of the yard, and they would take the refuse, and then somebody would come and pick it up in a honey bucket truck, and then often they spilled it on the street, and that caused problems mm. that had to be washed down. What do you have, Eugene? I have uh, Chris H. says Seattle. It is the only place where I've been able to ski powder and take a boat ride in the same weekend. And the coffee isn't bad either. Ah, there lovely. We go. Okay, thank you so much, everyone, for participating. <clears throat> it's time now to get back to the game. Would you please welcome our next contestant via Skype, Nusha Gailey? Hello. Uh, why don't you tell us uh, where you're from and what you do? I usually live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but I've been stuck in Los Angeles for the last couple of days. So I'm an architect, and I explore the future of cities through the power of technology. Okay, sounds good. Why don't you tell us something we don't know, Nusha? In 2013, the Israeli government conducted emergency vaccinations for polio, despite having eradicated the terrible virus 25 years prior. So my question is, how was this resurgence detected? Did they uh, see FDR there? <laughs> um, no. Was it associated with a group of people who traveled from Israel to some other location? No. Were there a lot of Google queries? Do I have polio? Uh. <laughs> no, although that does happen. Was the polio uh, vaccination campaign real, or was it one of those uh, CIA funded? polio vaccination campaigns like they do in Pakistan to go knocking on doors and find terrorists? No, so this one was real. And your question is, how was it discovered? Exactly. Was it discovered in Israel? It was. I don't think we're going to guess the answer to your very intriguing riddle, so why don't you tell us? Okay, um, the polio virus was actually detected by researchers in sewage. Mm. So the polio virus is silent and dangerous. Um, it starts spreading before people show signs of the illness. And so when the government found out that it was present underground, they wasted no time in launching a campaign and vaccinated almost one million children. Um, as a result, there was not a single case of paralytic polio that was reported. 
Now, this is just one example um, of an application of sewage epidemiology. You can tell a lot about a person by looking at their urine and their stool, uh, what foods we're eating, what infections we're harboring, and, and a lot more. And every day we're actually flushing all this information down the toilet and it's collecting in our sewers. So for the past two years, I've been working on a team at MIT uh, designing a system to understand the health and well-being of a community through sewage sampling at the neighborhood scale. Um, because we're sampling in the city as opposed to wastewater treatment plants, we have this challenge of actually getting the samples out of the sewer pipes. And so that's where Mario and Luigi come in. Um, they are small sewer scavenging robots that we designed um, and that we deploy below the manhole covers and kind of wait while they slurp up the good stuff, um, leaving our hands clean. So I'll just share uh, a couple findings with you uh, so far. Um, in the areas that we've tested, uh, most people poop at 8 a.m., so pretty standard. <laughs> I can tell you that pomegranate is far more popular than we thought in Cambridge. <laughs> Sounds like someone's uh, in Porter Square. Yeah. <laughs> um, and more people tend to take Advil rather than Tylenol. Now, sewage epidemiology, so that's not your field per se, or is it? Are you on the robot side or on the epidemiology side? No, so I'm, I'm on the side where we're essentially trying to understand, you know, what information can we extract from our cities? What was the most common thing you found in the poop stream of Boston. For one of the communities in uh, Cambridge, we were looking at all of the most abundant plant DNAs. Pot. And <laughs> that was not on our top 10. <laughs> but the number one was cotton. Now, um, where is the cotton coming from, Nusha? So at Laundry first, nets. we thought toilet paper, but there's actually no cotton in toilet paper. So cottonelle is a lie. Um, <laughs> it's coming from laundry water. Laundry water that's going into our sewage uh, brings with it a lot of cotton fibers. I think one of the applications that we're most excited about is being able to look at the antibiotic resistance levels of certain communities and kind of monitor this and share this information with hospitals and caregivers. Have you tried working it in cities that don't have sewage systems? And many of the cities in the developing world are, are, you know, this is a huge risk and they can't actually, they don't have sewage systems that functionally deal with it. Is there a way of testing it when you have it dispersed? Yep. We want to explore um, how can we actually take this to an environment that could potentially benefit from it a lot more. Um, but once, when you don't have a separated wastewater and stormwater system, you're just collecting a lot more noise. So it makes the lab assays just a little bit more difficult. But... Um, that's one direction that we do want to be moving in. So interesting, Nusha. Mike Maughan, sewage epidemiology. What more can you tell us? Cottonelle, you'll be delighted to know, came under great fire for not having cotton in their toilet paper. Mm. So they created one brand in March of 2013 that does <laughs> include a very little. The Smithsonian Institute published an article talking about how sewage epidemiology is not just a pipe dream. And it talked about... I know, I know. <laughs> I, I didn't write it. Um, but it, it talked about how the most frequent original use of, of this type of epidemiology was to figure out the types and quantities of illegal drugs being used in various cities. It's interesting to note that during the 2013 scare, polio vaccination was actually the second most popular Google search uh, in Israel. It was second only to, you guessed it, the Harlem Shake. <laughs> Nusha Gailey, thank you so much for joining us via Skype. Great job. Thank you. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Bob Daler. Hey, Bob, where are you from? What do you do? I'm, I'm a practicing consulting engineer. And in, in the last 50 years plus or so, um, I have worked on um, getting the poops away from the toilets. Oh. Uh, <laughs> And I wish that it says that on your business card. <laughs> uh, it, it almost does. Um, yes, I, and I'm happily uh, enjoying uh, active retirement um, or, or a failed retirement as a senior vice president at TetraTech, a, a large international consultancy. Okay. And, and my question is, why should Boston be like uh, Venice, Italy. 
Do you mean to say what should Boston do to be more like Venice? Is it getting rid of the friggin' duck boats and getting gondolas instead? <laughs> um, that's not, that's not the, uh, the model I had in mind. Did, did you have in mind anything to do with flooding by any chance? I do. Mm. Huh? Oh. Mm. Should we submerge Copley Square? <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, nature may be doing that for us. Mm. Oh. Mm. Is that how we're sinking? Boston is sinking just like... No, Boston's not sinking. Good? That's good. That's good. So but, does this but, have to do with weather? Yes. It does. Mm. And flooding and canals and things of that, that nature? Yes. So the panelists sound like they're very close. Yes, Bob, I assume. But your That's question exactly. is, what should Boston do that Venice has done or is doing? Uh, is doing. All right, Bob, why don't you tell us what Boston should do to copy uh, Venice, please? The sea level rises are flooding our waterfront properties. And this is especially important in Boston because so much of our land is built on reclaimed sea land. And we continue to build in these, uh, in, in these flood-prone areas. So the flood protection strategies that we're using today are primarily building resilience into the individual buildings and flood-proofing those buildings. But in the future, that would just leave these buildings sitting as islands in a flooded landscape. Sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> there were all kinds of ideas about various alternatives and strategies. And so in 2014, I wrote a paper about an alternative strategy called the Sapphire Necklace, a tidal barrier through the outer harbor islands. And the barrier would restrict tidal and storm flows into the inner harbor and reduce flood levels. Similar barriers have been built in Venice, and the tide gate at the mouth of the Thames in London has been operational since the uh, 80s. So that there are obvious impacts of doing a solution like this. It changes the ecology. And those concerns are being addressed right now by the University of Massachusetts in Boston, who has received a grant to actually study the impacts of mm. such a tidal barrier. The Venice Project, uh, is it called Moses, Operation Moses or something for the flood, for parting the seas or something? Yes, Venice is built on a, a series of, of marsh islands. And in what Venice is doing is building on those barrier islands floodgates in the shipping channels. And so these, during the seasonal high waters, these floodgates rise, pinch off the tide, and, and keep the levels of flooding down inside the city itself. Boston can do the very same thing. Borderline cost? It's in the, in the, in the billions. <laughs> <laughs> but like five billion or like 200 billion? No, like five billion. Okay. Oh, we could do that. Bob, I have a two-part question for you. What would this floodgate um, be made of? And uh, I assume you're involved in that design of some kind. And did said design draw on your poop background? Where we are now is a concept of how it may be uh, constructed. The ability to expand the harbor islands um, to create this barrier is very strong. Mike Maughan, the great seawall of Boston, how do Bob's facts sound to you? So in all of my Googling, it's true that the government is considering building a massive wall, but enough about Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> so forecasters do note that Boston may be in trouble. Uh, if the oceans keep rising, estimates are that it will threaten 90,000 people and $80 billion of real estate. In Venice, their wall has cost $5 billion so far, which is double the estimated cost. It is currently 1,200 feet long, so $4.1 million a foot. Sounds like a great deal. It's worth noting that $22 million of that cost uh, was spent on kickbacks to the mayor of Venice. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, thank you very much. And Bob Daler, thank you so much for playing Tell thank Me you. Something I Don't Know. Great job. 
And would you all please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Joe Bagley. Hey, Joe, what do you do? Hi, I am Boston City archaeologist and the author of A History of Boston and 50 Artifacts. Okay, Joe, let's hear what you've got. So Italy has one of these, but Boston has one too. What is it? Didn't we just go over this? And the answer is not a seawall, apparently, right? Uh, Does it have anything to do with water treatment? Uh, No, not directly. Does it have to do with religion? No, not specifically. Is there an Italian aerosmith? No. (laughs) Not that I know of. (laughs) Is this got to do with any sort of a criminal organization? No. Infrastructure? No. Infrastructure that's so broad. (laughs) You just know. (laughs) Wow. Is it a public space or a private space? Both. Is it erotic? (laughs) Thank you for pausing. (laughs) (laughs) That comes up with the Italian version, but not specifically with the Boston. Always the case. <laughs> is, is it a, it's a space? Yes. A, a sexy Italian space that here is just a Pret-a-Manger. <laughs> Joe, I think you should tell us. So Boston has its very own Pompeii. Oh, that's very specific. Yes. So on the morning of June 17, 1775, British occupying forces discovered that rebel troops had secretly fortified Charlestown's strategic Breed's Hill. In response, the British attacked the fortifications and the nearby city in what became known as the Battle of Bunker Hill, and they also burned down the city of Charlestown. Upon returning to their town to rebuild, the residents of Charlestown voted to leave Three Cranes Tavern, the center of the town and the community's hub, um, to be never built upon forever. In fact, it took another 200 years before anyone even uh, thought to develop it. During another historic time in Boston's history, the start of the Big Dig in the 1980s, They chose the still undeveloped parcel as the easiest route for their massive tunnel to pass through Charlestown, which triggered a large-scale archaeological dig in 1985. Nearly one million artifacts from Charlestown were recovered from this burned but otherwise untouched half-acre of an 18th-century urban town center. But no volcano. No, no. So they have their own Pompeii, meaning not at all like Pompeii. (laughs) (laughs) So when the archaeologists came through, they essentially found everything that was left there on June 17, 1775, with the exception of the fact that it was on fire at one point, um, which is pretty similar to what happened in Pompeii. And so they were able to dig a city... Nice try. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so tell us what... You know, the good stuff, what, what was found. We found privies, or the outhouses, mm. uh, for the tavern. Um, I feel we began the night with the theme of cities, and we've ended up with Italian sewage. <laughs> <laughs> we look for the outhouses when we dig an archaeological site, because that's where everyone threw their garbage. And archaeology is essentially the study of trash. So um, we find those outhouses, along with everything else they contain, is the daily dishes, the food, uh, but we can also see things like parasites, clothing. Uh, now, one of the reasons we love Pompeii, of course, is it's full of these pleasure villas that the wealthiest true. Romans of the time would that's go true. to, and they would relax as the cooling Mediterranean breezes calm down. Was 18th century Charleston a lot like that? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> we actually have archaeological digs in Boston brothels, and they're incredibly interesting from the 19th century specifically. What, what could are, you find in the dirt record that would indicate, however, that kind of um, either a brothel or a pleasure zone? Uh, specifically, the one that we dug in Boston, uh, we found vaginal syringes, which were used wait, to... Wait, yeah, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> Um, they were used to um, administer STD medication, which would have been used even back in the 19th century, probably not the same ones as today. They also used it to um, apply abortives. I, didn't I think somehow did not think when I asked the question that you would have an answer. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Mike Maughan, <laughs> Joe has been telling us about Boston's own Pompeii. What more can you tell us? I'm at a pretty severe disadvantage because most of the stuff that I found on this topic was written by none other than Joe Bagley. No. <laughs> That, that said, this location was originally the home of Massachusetts' first governor, John Winthrop. In 1630, this spot served as the first government building of the colony, the first courthouse, and of course, as Winthrop's home. It was eventually converted into a church, and in 1635, 
served as both a tavern and a church at the same time. Tell me you all wouldn't join that one. (laughs) (laughs) Mike Maughan, thank you so much. And Joe Bagley, thanks. Great job. Thanks for playing. Can we give one more hand to all our contestants tonight? That was phenomenal. It is time now for our panelists to vote. They will use a ranked voting system to pick their favorites, and the contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner and will join us back on stage later. All right, then, who will it be? Joe Bagley with Boston's own Pompeii, Bob Daler with the Great Seawall of Boston, Nusha Gailey with Sewage Epidemiology, David Glick with the Purple Mares of America, Noah Wilson-Rich with Country Bees and City Bees, or Sarah Williams with Chinese Ghost Cities. While the votes are being cast, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, why don't you spread the word and give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. All right, the panelists' votes are in. Once again, thanks so much to all our contestants. Unfortunately, there can only be one winner, but we do have for each of you this Certificate of Impressive Knowledge, (laughs) which I'm sure you'll treasure. And tonight's winner, with her IDK about sewage epidemiology by Skype, Nusha Gailey. So, Nusha, congratulations. Uh, You will be back on the show in a little bit to face one of our panelists in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Which one? We will find out right after this break. Welcome back. It is time now for our panelists, Ed Glazer, Amy Glassmeyer, and Eugene Merman to answer some lightning round questions that are written especially for them. Ed Glazer, Harvard economist, city-loving suburb dweller, we're going to start with you. In 10 seconds or less, would you please answer the following? You've called cities our greatest invention. What's the single most valuable thing about cities? They connect us and enable us to learn from one another. After Hurricane Katrina, you argued against rebuilding New Orleans, and you think we should worry less about rebuilding Detroit. Why? I think the real city is the people that live in it, and unless we have policies that put people first, that target the children of Detroit, make them better educated, give them more safety, and make sure that the investments actually aid the citizens of New Orleans instead of wasting money on overly expensive infrastructure. What's the single most anti-city piece of federal regulation? Oh, so hard to pick with. Let's go with subsidization of highways, but the home mortgage interest deduction comes in a close second. (laughs) It says here you began wearing a three-piece suit while in prep school, and you never stopped. So two-part question, why? And did your high school classmates universally commend you for wearing that three-piece suit? (laughs) Well, of course they did, naturally. All all teenage boys are always (laughs) kind to each other. Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's fundamentally about wanting to, wanting to be different, wanting to speak out and have your own personality. Very good. Finally, you like to sit at home and write so you can smoke cigars in peace. If you were to start a sit-at-home-and-write-in-order-to-smoke-cigars-in-peace club, who's the first person, living or dead, that you'd invite to join? Oh, Churchill, obviously. <laughs> Nicely done at Glazer. Next up, we've got the MIT Urban Studies scholar Amy Glassmeyer. Here we go in 10 seconds or less. You call yourself a spatial economist, which means what? I study where things are or why they're not there. Hmm. You're not a big fan of cities because why? Uh, Cities are boundaryless in certain ways, and I think that human habitation goes over much larger spaces. Hmm. One of your pastimes while traveling is going into grocery stores to check out prices. Why? To see what the relationship is between the cost of food in one location versus another. Uh, if you were a whitewater rafting guide right now, and Ed Glazer and Eugene Merman were both <laughs> in danger of drowning, but you could save only one, which one? I would give them the option of saving each other. When Boston holds an Amy Glassmeyer day, what would you like it to include? 
<laughs> I think a trip around the harbor. What's the food? Lobsters. And is there any Pompeian sex revelry? Or is it a... <laughs> on Deer Island. On Deer Island. Amy Glassmeyer, thank you so much. On now to our final panelist, Eugene Merman. Eugene, you recently took out a full-page ad in the Portsmouth, New Hampshire newspaper protesting a parking ticket you got there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. How'd that work out? It worked out quite well um, for me, who got to express my anger. Did they change anything? Well, basically, my complaint was that they didn't have a sign telling you of a local ordinance to park, I think, uh, facing, you know, in or something like Mm. that. And so they gave me a ticket, but for a thing I could have never been aware of. Mm. So I became furious, paid the ticket, and took out a full-page ad in a local paper. Uh, You've also taken out ads in the New York Press and uh, the Greenpoint Brooklyn Gazette criticizing Time Warner Cable. Was that effective as well? That was wildly effective. Mm -hmm. So that was effective in that, first of all, they responded on their formal blog. What turns out there is, is uh, there's a whole department that will help you much, much faster if you uh, complain in a famous way. Uh. (laughs) Very effective. I highly recommend it. Uh, Eugene, you sometimes co-host Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Does Neil deGrasse Tyson really know everything about everything? He does know quite a bit in a way that seems suspicious. (laughs) And Eugene, finally, what's your favorite thing about Boston? Oh. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I don't know. I don't know. Tucked in shirts. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think it's like the, the uh, sort of goodwill hunting-ish, the, the way that uh, people are a combination of extraordinarily aggressive and very bright. <laughs> well done, Eugene Merman. It is time now for our live audience to pick one panelist based on their performance during the lightning round who will face our audience contestant winner in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. So, who will it be? Ed Glazer, Amy Glassmeyer, or Eugene Merman? All right, audience, I want to hear you make as much noise as you can for all of them, of course, but a little bit more noise for your most preferred candidate to go on to the final round. Noise number one, Professor Ed Glazer. I would call that a substantial amount of noise. Option number two, Professor Amy Glassmeyer. Also very substantial. And in slot number three, the comedian Eugene Merman. Our extra-sensitive ears tell us that we believe Eugene Merman has won the audience vote as our panelist. Congratulations, Eugene. All right, and it's time now to bring our audience winner, Nusha Gailey, back into the auditorium via the magic of Skype. Nusha, you and Eugene will face off in our final round for our grand prize. The final round is very simple, very fast. In a moment, we will reveal a topic that's related somehow to tonight's theme of cities. Nusha and Eugene, you'll then have a minute to tell us something we don't know about that topic. No Googling, no audience help, just your own brains to rely on. In case you're tempted to make something up, remember our fact checker Mike Maughan is standing by. All right, what is our final topic? Well, one thing that distinguishes a city from its suburban and rural neighbors is the amount of activity that takes place underground. So that is our final topic tonight, things that are underground. Use your imagination. Good luck. We'll give you a minute. While our finalists are thinking, let me remind you to visit tmsidk.com to get tickets to upcoming shows or if you'd like to be a contestant. If you would like to suggest a theme for a future episode or recommend a panelist, give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. We go by TMSIDK underscore show. All right, Eugene and Nusha, it's time. You'll tell us something we don't know about things that are underground. Eugene Merman, you first. Um, In New York City on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, there is a sewer uh, manhole that you can open 
and get guided tours. You go down and you get a guided tour of the first uh, subway uh, that was there. It is literally in the middle of one of the busiest streets that they kind of stop traffic in that little area, and then you all climb down. Pretty good, Eugene Merman. Nusha, mm-hmm. Gailey, via Skype from um, Los Angeles, what do you got? Okay, so this is something that's underground. When tsunamis happen, um, they tend to pop up and come to the surface. And I actually experienced this when I was visiting a, a tsunami-stricken area in the South Pacific Ocean, uh, in Samoa. And the thing is graves. So that's actually a problem for coastal cities when they're hit with a tsunami. A lot of the graves from cemeteries pop up um, due to the, the force of the water. And what did you do? Was there a big reburial project? What happened? Yeah, so it's a very sensitive subject because um, the ancestors' family are buried quite prominently in in this example, in Samoa, um, right along the sea, because the sea is actually uh, a spiritual place of the gods in Samoan culture. So kind of working with them to, to design something that works for everyone. Very good, Nusha. Thank you. Uh, Mike Maughan, uh, a magical manhole in Brooklyn that leads to the subway, unearthed uh, graves after a tsunami. So both of these are actually true, which is surprising because... <laughs> Eugene usually makes stuff up. <laughs> so you can go to Atlantic Avenue and take these tunnel tours. They ask you to please wear sneakers or boots and bring a flashlight. Um, and if, if you're lucky, you can see the Ninja Turtles. As far as tsunamis, I, I can't find anything saying that that's true, but often during flooding, uh, caskets will come up. So this, this is true. It is time now for our live audience to pick a winner for tonight. Remember the criteria, was it something you did not know? Was it something worth knowing? And was it something that's demonstrably true? Okay, so first, I'd like you to make some noise for panelist Eugene Merman's IDK about the Brooklyn Manhole. And now, Nusha Gailey's IDK about the unearthed graves of Samoa. I'm going to declare that a perfect tie. So congratulations, we do have a prize that we'll give to the both of you. Do you remember um, back at the top of the show when Mayor Marty Walsh told us about one of the strangest tragedies in Boston history? About 100 years ago, there was a molasses flood in Boston where waves of molasses rushed through the streets of the North End. Well, the molasses flood killed 21 people, left another 150 or so injured. For years afterward, North End residents swore that on summer days they could still smell the molasses. Well, Eugene and Nusha, you can help us all commemorate the victims and keep history alive with this Boston Molasses Disaster T-shirt featuring the front page of that day's Boston Daily Globe. Wear it in good health. Congratulations. And that is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you did not know about cities. Thank you so much to our panelists, Ed Glazer, Amy Glassmeyer, and Eugene Merman, to our fact checker, Mike Maughan, to our brilliant contestants. And thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. And on next week's show, we tackle Family Matters. Our panelists are the comedian Gary Gullman, New Yorker cartoonist Liza Donnelly, and Yale Law professor and Tiger mom Amy Chua. Our fact checker is A.J. Jacobs. Almost all the records of the 1890 census were destroyed in a fire started by a cigarette-smoking worker. Turns out smoking cigarettes when you're in an archive full of flammable paper, not the best idea. That's next week on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. 
You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>